Hey everyone, it's Angela here. Happy Tuesday. Before we get into today's show, I just want to very briefly remind you of the huge giveaway that we're doing that closes on the 25th of June, and that is the opportunity to win my Live Younger Longer Blueprint. And with the bonuses that we've thrown in, it's worth over $6,000. And you can win that program together with a free DNA test. It's the world's most advanced test that we do um, together with a one-to-one coaching call with me. And that can all be yours. All you need to do to enter this competition is to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already and leave a positive review on iTunes or Spotify or whatever platform you're listening on. Take a screenshot and email it to Vanessa at AngelaFosterPerformance.com or simply just tag me on Instagram at Angela S. Foster so that we can enter you into the competition. Now, if you have already left a review, I am hugely grateful to that. Um, Without you guys, this podcast wouldn't be happening. So I'm super grateful for all your support. And if you have already done that, just make sure to email us, Vanessa at AngelaFosterPerformance.com so that my assistant Vanessa can add you into the competition to make sure that you're entered. And so thank you for all of your support. As I say, if you haven't already, make sure you get your entry in before the 25th when we'll be drawing the prize we don't know enough to be freaked out um i think that and and the thing to keep in mind is that the like i said the brain is really plastic and even organizational changes the brain really can find workarounds for but um but we but we need to know whether or not that's true welcome to the high performance health podcast with your host angela foster the show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high-performance mind, body, and lifestyle. I recently read a very interesting book called How the Pill Changes Everything, Your Brain on Birth Control. It's written by Dr. Sarah E. Hill. And after reading this book, I just had to get Dr. Sarah on the show. It was such a fascinating book. I think we can all agree that the pill has empowered women in so many ways to regulate their fertility and make plans and achieve their educational and life goals. It really has been a pivotal um, key in the advancement of women. But you're going to learn other things that the pill does. And I think it's really important for those of you listening, particularly parents like myself, when we look ahead and think about what might happen with our daughters if they were prescribed it, um, especially in the teenage years like I was, to treat things like PCOS and endometriosis, as it's so regularly given out for things other than contraception. And I think this podcast is going to really open your eyes to some of the things that the pill can do, including changing the organizational structure of the brain, uh, which is a little bit scary, and also the type of men that you find attractive when you're taking the pill, um, and the role that estrogen plays in partner preferences, and a whole lot more. So, Let me introduce you to Dr. Sarah E. Hill. She is at the forefront of research on the effects of the pill on women's psychology. And her groundbreaking research on women, health and sexual psychology has resulted in more than 60 research publications and has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Scientific American, The Economist and many others. Most recently, Sarah has authored this 
wonderful book, This Is Your Brain on Birth Control, The Surprising Science of Women, Hormones and the Law of Unintended Consequences, which sheds critical new light on the psychological impact of women's sex hormones and the birth control pill. And you're about to hear all about that today. So let me introduce you now to the wonderful Dr. Sarah E. Hill. So I'm absolutely thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Sarah E. Hill. Sarah is a research psychologist and author of the fantastic book, Your Brain on Birth Control, which I've now read a couple of times. It's so amazing to have you here, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really thrilled actually to share what I think will be hugely enlightening for so many people. The book certainly enlightened me, um, particularly as somebody who has previously used birth control um, for many years for various reasons. And it's really interesting because I think before we get started, I don't want people to think it's bad. And you're very clear on that in the book, that actually it's empowered us in so many ways. And as as an ex-lawyer myself, I was looking at the rates of increase in the legal profession and the medical profession over the decades. So, I mean, it has resulted in wonderful things, hasn't it? Um, Yeah, it has. I mean, by allowing women to regulate their fertility, we've allowed them to plan and like the ability to make plans is, um, is really incredible in terms of, you know, being able to sort of benchmark um, educational goals, life goals, um, and, and feel like we actually have a realistic chance of meeting them, you know, because we're not going to get benched by an unexpected pregnancy. And, um, and this has been absolutely transformative in the lives of women. I mean, it's allowed us to feel confident that if we start college, we can finish college or we start an advanced degree program like law school, we're going to finish law school because we know that we can um, do that without a pregnancy interrupting things. Um, and I think that this, you know, has been really pivotal in, um, in terms of the advancement of women and fertility regulation is really, um, I think that it's the most important women's rights issue that's out there, period. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And so I think there's, there are many wonderful things it's done. And in the book, actually, you don't just talk about the birth control pill. You talk about other forms of contraception, like patches and things, which seem to have an equal influence on the areas um, that we're going to kind of dive into today. But looking first of all, because obviously the pill itself stops ovulation. Um, But what I think many people don't realize and have no idea of is the way that it is affecting our brains. So could we start there and just kind of the impact that it's having? Because that was a real eye opener to me. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the thing that people don't realize is that when they take hormonal birth control, the primary mechanism of action is actually the brain because the brain is what controls ovulation. And so the way that the birth control pill works is it releases this synthetic level, you know, these, you get these synthetic hormones that you're taking every day and the hormone ratio is relatively high levels of progesterone or or synthetic progesterones, which are called progestins, and then really low levels of estradiol. And this mimics the hormonal message that your body is generally creating during the luteal phase of the cycle, which is the phase of the cycle after ovulation has occurred, but where the body is waiting to see whether that fertilized egg or whether there is a fertilized egg that's going to implant itself. And so what that, so those levels, you know, the, the hormones are actually picked up by the hypothalamus, which is in the brain. And that fools the brain into thinking that an egg has already been released. 
And so it doesn't stimulate the ovaries to start creating new egg follicles. But in addition to influencing the hypothalamus in the brain, which is what controls the ovulatory process, it also influences every other major structure of the brain. And that's because there are hormone receptors like progesterone and estradiol receptors all over the place in the brain. And they're all over the place in the body. Um, our bodies are incredibly sensitive to our sex hormones. And the reason for this is that, you know, for women, um, pregnancy requires almost every major system in the body to completely redo or like, you know, have a workaround for whatever it's doing. Like it changes what the circulatory system has to do. It changes what your digestive system has to do. It changes what your immune system has to do, right? So there are receptors for sex hormones on basically every major system of the body um, and in including the brain. And, and in fact, you know, I would argue that there's probably, and, and I, I don't know for certain that this is true, but I'm pretty certain that it's true, that there isn't a structure in the body that um, has more receptors for sex hormones than the brain. Um, and, and, and there's a ton of research now that's been amassing that I um, uh, present in the book um, that, that, that explains the different ways that now research is confirming what women have suspected, you know, since the dawn of time, since birth control started, women have been, have suspected that the pill was influencing their brain and influencing how they feel. And there's a lot of research that suggests that it does. And in lots of areas of functioning. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because when you talk about it in, in one area of the book, you talk about the different types of pill. And that was certainly how I understood it you know when I was prescribed the pill or various of my friends where they were like oh no you've got to get off that one that one's really bad because try this one it's really good and and you make that point about experimentation but beyond that it also structurally changes one of the most eye-opening things for me was how it might affect your choice of partner and how that might affect your long-term marriage I think you talk about somebody in the book who was prescribed birth control and then um, she was never kind of that into uh, sex with her husband. And then after having children, when she didn't, he needed a mistake or he had a vasectomy uh, and she didn't require it anymore. She suddenly started, her eyes started wandering to all these other men that she hadn't figured out she found attractive before. And that was just fascinating. Um, yeah. And I can't tell you the number of times I've heard that story from women and, 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 and yeah, it's, it's the, it's the craziest, it's the craziest thing. And, but it makes absolute sense when you understand the way that our sex hormones influence sexual attraction and, uh, and sexual behavior and partner preferences. Um, and this is some research that dates back, gosh, you know, it's been going on for probably 20 years or so, um, showing that, um, the hormonal changes that occur near ovulation uh, seem to play an important role in women's uh, partner preferences and even sexual desire. Um, and so what this research finds is that during points in the cycle close to ovulation, in particular, um, that what's known as the periovulatory window, which is about five days prior to ovulation and right near the time of ovulation, which generally occurs uh, for most women between like days 10 to 12 um, in the cycle, is that when estradiol um, or estrogen is starting to increase, which is what happens prior to ovulation as an egg is maturing in the follicle, it releases a lot of estrogen. Um, and when estrogen levels increase, 
Um, it increases women's sexual desire. So there's a ton of evidence suggesting that, um, when estrogen is high in the cycle, that women feel more desirous of sex. They have a more intense and, um, like sort of functioning sexual response to sex. Um, and they also have a preference for men who have, um, like indicators, uh, of like what we like to call, like what we call in the evolutionary sciences, like good genes. And so these men tend to, um, during times in the cycle, when estrogen is high, women seem to have a heightened preference for cues to testosterone presence, right? So for example, women tend to have a heightened preference for deeper male voices for men with more square jaws, deeper set eyes, um, like the sort of, uh, general, like broad shoulders, um, somebody who has, um, uh, uh, like higher levels of social dominance and like charisma and um, women are more drawn to these kinds of qualities um, at high fertility across the cycle, which again, you know, during that periovulatory window when estrogen is high um, and conception, like sex could potentially lead to conception during those points in the cycle, women want more sex and they tend to really sort of zero their preferences on these men who have these, um, these kinds of qualities. Um, and so you know, this research has existed um, in the world for, like I said, it's, it's been about two decades now that researchers have really been um, pinning down the role that estrogen plays in sexual responsiveness and partner preferences. Um, but it's only very recently that other researchers have like looked at that and said, well, wait a minute. <laughs> if estrogen increases women's desire for sex, right? And it increases their preference for partners who have these kinds of cues uh, to like facial masculinity and that sort of thing. So things that suggest um, uh, testosterone presence. Um, could it be then that when women are on hormonal birth control, which keeps um, estrogen levels really low, right? Especially the, the ratio of estrogen relative to those progestins, it's, it's, it's very low. Um, might that then predict that women who are on hormonal birth control might have a diminished desire for facial masculinity or, or cues to testosterone presence in their partners? Um, and so they've done these studies now, and the, the research seems to suggest that women who are on hormonal birth control not only prefer less masculine male faces in terms of their sort of ideal male face, um, but they also seem to be choosing them. So like in one study, they, um, they just simply, they got a, a big sample of partnered men. So everybody that they recruited in the study was, um, in a relationship. And then they just simply asked the, the men and their partners, um, were, when you guys got together was, um, the female of the dyad, was she on hormonal birth control or not? So they divided the, the groups into two, right? The, partners who were chosen by pill takers and the partners who were chosen by non pill takers. And they took a photograph of all the guys faces. And then they um, had people evaluate their masculinity. And then they also did um, uh, calculations because you can do these calculations. There's different facial uh, ratios that are associated with testosterone presence. And so you can actually calculate sort of facial masculinity using um, a computer algorithm. And um, both like in terms of people's ratings of the faces and in terms of what the computer algorithm spit out, the faces um, of the partners chosen by the pill takers 
had fewer testosterone markers. They were less masculine male faces than what was, um, than what was, uh, found among the partners chosen by the naturally cycling women. Um, and this suggests that our hormonal birth control could sort of decrease the emphasis that pill takers place on these sort of sexy cues in men. And, um, yeah, which is interesting, but it also affects the kind of immune function, doesn't it? And genetic potential of the the child effectively. Yeah. So yeah, 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 no, for sure. So there's also this other research, this, this research is, um, there's been less done, um, but the research that exists on this is really provocative. And so, um, the, the backdrop on all of this, um, you know, if we sort of circle back to this research that's been done for, you know, the past 20 years, looking at, um, the way that women's ovulatory cycles influence their partner preferences, um, research has found fairly consistently that, uh, that women, when they're near, um, high fertility in the cycle. So again, you know, during that periovulatory window, um, generally occurring like days five to seven to like day 14 in the cycle, women are having their, their estrogen is climbing and, um, and fertility, you know, sex is, or conception from sex during that time is um, possible. Uh, and during that time, um, what, what the research finds is that women tend to exhibit a preference for the scent of men whose immune genes are different than their own. And, um, they, they look at this with respect to the preference for the scent of partners whose, uh, major histocompatibility complex genes are different than their own. And, um, just to give you like a two second, uh, primer on what that means and why it's important. Um, major histocompatibility complex plays a role in uh, antigen recognition on our immune system cells. Antigens are just bad guys. So think about it, you know, like germs or anything that shouldn't be in your body is an antigen. Well, yeah, well, anyway, that's a, that's the definition we're going to go with. And, uh, and when you, the, the, the more <clears throat> antigens that your immune cells are able to recognize, the better your body is able to protect itself, right? It's essentially like able to recognize a greater number of bad guys. And so if you have, um, a diverse set of, um, uh, uh, these MHC genes, you're able to recognize a greater number of, um, antigens. The more, uh, if you have diverse MHC genes, it allows your body to recognize a greater number of these bad guys, which presumably makes you healthier because your immune system is able to respond to them. And so uh, researchers have proposed that when fertility is high, so when estrogen is high and conception is possible at this point in the cycle, women should exhibit a heightened preference, um, for qualities uh, that are associated with, um, a partner having different MHC genes than themselves. And this is something that, um, is, uh, because MHC is expressed on all epithelial on different like epithelial cells throughout the body. Um, with people, ex- it's reasoned that it might be communicated via scent and that we might be able to detect MHC compatibility via scent. And, um, long story short, uh, pill, uh, naturally cycling women prefer the scent of men whose immune systems are different than their own at high fertility when conception is possible. Um, and what they find is that, um, 
with pill-taking women, they do not exhibit this preference for this heightened preference for men with MHC, like different MHC than themselves, right? So in other words, they don't have this heightened preference for a cue that would potentially increase the health of their children, right? Because if it is true that by choosing a partner with different MHC genes than ourselves, that we're more likely to have healthy offspring, which there's some evidence that suggests that this is in fact correct, that this seems to be true and that things like uh, miscarriage rates, for example, um, Mm -hmm. uh, tend to be higher in partners that are more MHC similar than MHC dissimilar. Um, what this suggests is that, um, the pill by sort of masking women's preference for, um, men who have different MHC genes in themselves could potentially be leading women to partner with men, um, who, who's, you know, essentially it, it could potentially be disadvantageous in terms of the health of their children. And this is right now just a speculation. This is just like theory, um, an idea based on like what the research shows. Um, there's some like a tiny bit of like survey data looking at, um, reported doctor visits, um, for children of people who, um, uh, have, uh, chose their partners on the pill or not on the pill. Um, that se- that seemed to suggest that, um, it's possible that the pill taker, the ones who chose their partners when they were on the pill might have children that require more doctor's visits, but it's like one study and um, it's not something that's been replicated yet. And so this is like very, like, take this all with a grain of salt. This is just an idea. Um, And it's certainly not something that women should be super alarmed about. Like we shouldn't be getting alarmed about really anything just yet, um, particularly this type of a, a result, because it is sort of right now, just more theory than it is um, empirically backed research. Well, exploratory at the moment. But results. nevertheless, if you are, if anyone is single listening and you're on birth control, it's probably time to get off to find that strong, sexy male that you can <laughs> procreate yeah, exactly. with, isn't it? How interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's really important because um, I think that it is important for women to at least understand that this is a possibility because uh, how many of us, you know, uh, I have (laughs) including myself, how many of us were on hormonal birth control during times in our life where we absolutely didn't need to be, Mm -hmm. but it just was like, easy to just keep on going. And I think women should know that it's possible that it could influence their partner preferences because if they are single and looking for a long-term partner and they don't need to be on hormonal birth control for any other, you know, for any real reason, if they're not sexually active, um, they might want to take a break from it, Yeah, you know, and let their natural hormones do their partner picking. Yeah, for sure. For sure. There's advantages. What's really interesting as well is let's talk about that because people are prescribed it, aren't they? And we were talking before we started about how I was very readily and quickly prescribed birth control as a young teenage girl who kind of, and and I think looking back, I wonder how this has affected the development of my brain. And I just want to inform people because there's going to be mums listening who are looking at their daughters like I am and thinking, well, let's open up the conversation, really think about it. Because, you know, my periods, I, they, they were problematic from the beginning. They didn't show up. I was never diagnosed with PCOS until I was in my 20s. But certainly the GP's automatic thing was when my mum took me in was automatic prescription for birth control. And you make the point in the book that 
um, there's there's an association, you know, the brain is still developing in young females up until their early 20s, I think you say, and that this can have an impact and there's a higher risk of depression in those teenagers. But I think you've also said now there's a new study that says you're more likely to be diagnosed with chronic depressive disorder. And that was a diagnosis I was then given on the back end of years of postnatal uh, depression. And that's just super interesting to me because you're absolutely right. If it affects the brain and the brain's developing, how the hell do we know what we were doing? And my outcomes could have been vastly different potentially based on this. So while we're talking about the brain here, I want to tell you about one of my favorite brain boosting supplements, and that is Lion's Mane. Now, Lion's Mane is rich in brain boosting compounds known as erinacines that can help stimulate neurons to regrow and rebuild myelin, which can actually help to improve cognitive function, mental clarity, and increase memory. And there's been some really promising research in rats around the use of Lion's Mane in helping with things like nerve growth factor and avoiding dementia and so it's something that I certainly take on a regular basis especially as I do have one copy of APOE4 which is the gene that's linked to Alzheimer's so I'm really um, intent on keeping my smarts. Now I love the mushrooms that are done by Wild Kingdom Extracts and it's their lion's mane that I actually take in tincture form um, during the day and also at night. It has also shown improvements in enhancing REM sleep as well which helps with emotional regulation and then I also dose that at night with some reishi and also some chaga and I love their pine pollen as well which can help it's to uh, to enhance DHEA it's actually a natural source of that Um, again another hormone that's really important for overall energy and optimal brain functioning now you can get a cool 15% off all of Wild Kingdom Extracts tinctures by heading over to their website wildkingdomextracts.com and entering code Angela at checkout. So that's wildkingdomextracts.com and enter code Angela at checkout to get 15% off your order. Now let's get back to the show. Yeah, no, I think that this whole, I think the idea of giving hormonal birth control to girls prior, you know, like during adolescence, prior to the time that their brain is done developing um, without any research on the long-term effects of this is criminal. I mean, I, I really do. Because when we think about the fact that, you know, puberty and the post and the whole post-pubertal brain development that goes on and brain development explodes during the pubertal transition. I mean, if you think about who you are as a child and who you are as an adult, all of that, you know, are these like post-pubertal brain changes. Mm. And those are all being coordinated by your sex hormones. It's puberty for God's sake, you know? And so the idea that, you know, we're taking like these, our body for millions of years was getting these hormonal messages that, you know, regularly go on in the body and are coordinating all of these brain changes that are going on and laying down the the groundwork, the biological groundwork for our adult brain and our adult body. And to, to interrupt that and, and suppress it with hormonal birth control and replace it with this daily message of, you know, these synthetics, we don't know what that's doing. We don't know how that's influencing the organization of the brain. Um, and there is research now that's coming out you know, that suggests that if you take hormonal birth control during adolescence, 
Um, and generally this is looked at um, in women 19 and younger. We usually define, you know, adolescence as anywhere during the, you know, sort of 11 to 19 phase. Um, it's, it's during this pubertal transition, basically the movement from childhood to adulthood. Um, if you take hormonal birth control during that time, um, in the, the study that I'm referring to right now, I believe that they isolated it, um, in women 15 to 19. Um, oh no, 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 they didn't No, I'm thinking about the Danish study. No, this was just the adolescent women generally. So 19 and younger. Um, and they looked at the risk of being diagnosed with major depressive disorder at some point later on in your life. And so they looked, and this was a very large sample size. And so they compared the probability of being, um, of being diagnosed with major depressive disorder based on whether you took hormonal birth control during adolescence or not. Um, and what they found was that those who were prescribed hormonal birth or took hormonal birth control during adolescence were at a greater risk for major depressive disorder over the course of their lifetime, even if they were no longer on hormonal birth control. And what this is telling us is that, you know, and, and it, it, this isn't, this is a cross-sectional study, right? So it is, it was um, longitudinal research. So this was following girls over time which is always, you know, sort of a, a be better than, than simple cross-sectional research, but it wasn't an experiment. So we cannot determine that taking hormonal birth control during adolescence causes major depressive disorder, in, you know, risk over the lifetime. We can't say that for, but there's definitely um, a pretty, there's a pretty suspicious looking association between those variables because the researchers did a really nice job of of the way that they modeled their statistics to help account for alternative explanations for their results. Um, but the results seem to suggest that yes, pill use during adolescence may increase your risk of de developing a depressive disorders across the period of your lifetime, even after you go off of it. Um, which, you know, to me seems uh, not at all surprising um, when we consider the fact that sex hormones play a really critical role in post-pubertal brain development. And there's absolutely no way that it doesn't change the brain during this time. Like there's not a doubt in my mind that women who take hormonal birth control during adolescence have different brains than girls who do not take hormonal birth control during adolescence. It would be impossible for it not to. And but is that different brains forever or just different brains while they're on it? I know different brains forever. forever. Because, um, I mean, your brain is developing. It's like when we talk about hormones and the way that they influence anything in the body, um, but particularly the brain, we tend to talk about them in terms of having two types of effects, right? One type is what we call activational effects. And these are sort of now you see it, now you don't effects. So like I take, you know, if I take testosterone, right. I might go into a roid rage today, but like <laughs> tomorrow when the testosterone has gone out of my system, I won't. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's an activational effect. It's like, now you see it now you don't, yeah. right. Cause the hormone is there. So it had, does the things it does, but then when it's metabolized, it goes away. But the other type of effect that hormones have is what's known as an organizational effect. And this is where the, the hormones are actually influencing developmental processes that are creating structures in the body, right? And this is what's going on during puberty. It's like all of those psychological changes that we experience during puberty where we're moody and we're becoming sexually interested in the opposite sex. And we want to pull away from our parents and toward our friends and all of those things. 
all of that is the result of changes like actual, you know, physiological changes and physical structures in the brain. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's all being coordinated by sex hormones. And so changing that is going to change the way that the brain is organized. I mean, I just, I just don't see any way around it. Um, I, it, it would be impossible for it not to influence it. Um, because we know that hormones are what direct the way that the brain is constructed during the post-pubertal transition. And so there's no way that changing what the hormones are doing won't change that. So yeah, that's going to be, those are permanent changes. I mean, that's an organizational change because the brain is actually reorganizing itself in part because of the hormonal messages that are being read, read by the brain. Um, and so there, there's no way that that won't be different. And so I would have absolutely no doubt in my mind that if we looked at, and, 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 and let me just like to add as a caveat so that way people don't get alarmed and freak out because this sounds very scary. And I think it's something that needs to be taken seriously. I mean, absolutely. This needs to be taken seriously. And women who have daughters, like I have a daughter, um, I am very cautious about the use of hormonal birth control before mm. like 19. Um, and, uh, and, and this isn't to say that nobody should do it. It's just to say to, to be, to really know what the trade-offs are, because we, there's not enough research to really know what the long-term long-term effects are. But, um, so we should take this very seriously. But when I say that I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that the pill, you know, changes the way that the brain is formed during adolescence. And that lasts across a lifetime. I don't know functionally whether it matters or how, by what margin, you know? So it's like, there's no way that it won't change brain development, but I don't like, I don't, it, it might not change it hugely. It may turn out that it's not these huge sweeping changes and the changes that happen might not even matter. Right. Cause sometimes, um, the brain is like this amazingly, um, plastic organ and, um, and, you know, if you are off of hormonal birth control for like, let's say 10 years, even if you were on it, um, during the pubertal transition, it is possible that your brain, even though there's, like I said, no doubt in my mind that your brain's going to be wired a little bit differently than a non-pill taker, your brain may have found workarounds, mm-hmm. um, to do the things that it would normally want to be doing if it was wired the way it would, if it was naturally cycling, because the brain is incredibly plastic and it finds workarounds for things um, when things aren't um, like organized the way that it's ex- w- the way that it is expected. Like our brain is very plastic, um, even into adulthood. It's not as plastic as it is during adolescence, but um, it's still very plastic. And so, I don't, you know, I don't want people to get overly alarmed, but um, but it is worth, you know, this is really important stuff, and certainly. Um, things that need to be researched a lot more before we start the idea that we prescribe um, hormonal birth control to adolescent girls um, who, you know, for minor inconveniences, like they, you know, they have really bad cramps or, you know, they um, have acne or they just don't like that their cycles irregular. Um, You know, I just urge caution with that. And I just urge uh, parents and, and physicians not, not again, like not to scare them and say, don't, don't do that. It's a terrible idea. I think each one of us can make that decision for ourselves, right? It's not up to me to tell you it's a bad idea. Cause for some women, I think it's probably still a good idea. Um, but it's just knowing the risks and what the trade-offs are and Definitely. is it worth it? And then for, yeah, as you say, informing yourself, because even, you know, from my own experience, it was there to kind of 
limit the gynecological issues. But actually, in my 20s, it still led to the same outcomes of surgery and treatment for endometriosis and PCOS, despite 10 years of pill use, which by the sounds of it may, I've been searching for missing links. You know, why did I end up with chronic depressive disorder rather than just postnatal? Why? Well, I, I was never somebody who was depressed. What would, and it's interesting, this research that's coming out, that it does change your brain. And I, as you say, you know, really all we're trying to do is create a conversation around it so that if mums, for example, are listening to this and thinking about their daughters and it's being suggested maybe to do their research and think, is this a good idea? Um, the other interesting area that was really eye-opening to me was the research that you talk about in relation to the stress response and cortisol. Mm -hmm. That was very interesting. Can you kind of expand on that? Yeah, no, this is, uh, this was really fascinating for me as well. And in part, you know, one of the reasons it was so fascinating was when I first learned about these effects, it was a reminder of like a sobering reminder of just how pervasive sex hormones are in terms of influencing the rest of the body. Um, because what this research finds is that women who are on hormonal birth control um, have a blunted cortisol response to stress. Um, and what this means, so just to give people a, a, a backdrop of what this means, and then we'll talk about why it's important and why it's meaningful. But uh, generally, when any one of us is feeling stressed out, like something stressful is happening, like we're giving a speech in front of other people or whatever it is, or even good stress, like Christmas morning, right? Or falling in love or our wedding day or, or the birth of our, the birth of a child, all of those things are associated with the release of stress hormones um, in particular um, in, in with the, uh, you know, well, not in particular, because both aspects of the stress response are really important, but one aspect of the, of the stress response is the release of the stress hormone cortisol and cortisol is something that most of us are familiar with, right? We tend to think of it as the stress hormone. Um, and we tend to think of it as bad, right? I know that there's a lot of, um, talk like cortisol has sort of a, a bad reputation just because it's associated with stress. Um, but, Cortisol actually isn't bad at all, at all when it's, you know, when we aren't um, exposed to chronic stress, right? In a regular stressful situation, the release of cortisol is actually really beneficial. Um, cortisol helps our body and our brain cope with whatever it is that, it, that we're experiencing that's stressful. And then also helps us remember everything that's going on because it actually prompts the birth of new neurons in the hippocampus priming our brain for memory when we're stressed out. I mean, all of these things help us cope with stressful situations right now, and then also be able to cope with them better in the future, right? We're taking in all of the information we're learning. Our brain is learning a lot of information when we're experiencing other release of cortisol in response to stress. And all of this helps us better adapt to our environment, right? So cortisol um, in response to stress is, is actually like a, a good thing, right? And, and cortisol isn't what causes stress. Um, it's actually how our body helps to process stress, right? Life is what causes stress, yeah. not cortisol. And um, what the research finds is that women who are on hormonal birth control, when they're experiencing something stressful, there's no rise in cortisol, and this is something that is really alarming. And the reason that this is alarming is that we don't usually see this pattern in healthy functioning adults. The only people that we generally see this pattern in 
is people who've experienced chronic stress, mm. trauma, like childhood abuse, people who have PTSD exhibit this pattern. And what this pattern is it like looks like the reason that this pattern occurs in these traumatized populations, like people with PTSD, people who've been um, abused as children is because when the body is, is uh, exposed to chronic stress, right? So not just like the kind of like first world chronic stress, right? Which is like, oh, I have to sit in traffic every day. Yeah. But instead <laughs> like actual chronic major stress. trauma, yeah. Yeah, like major trauma. The body is releasing so much cortisol because of the trauma um, that the, the body just shuts it down. It just shuts down the cortisol response. It says, nope. And the reason for this is that cortisol in small doses is really great because it's, it's, um, the body is essentially redirecting all of the resources that it uses for other things like cell repair, immune function, um, you know, the, the functioning of, of, uh, just regular, you know, brain processes it takes all of that energy and redirects it to dealing with the stressor. Right. And this works in the short term and it's great, like with dealing with and coping with stress in the short term, but in the long term, if all of your resources are being directed away from things like cell repair and, you know, the functioning of the immune system, the body will literally fall apart. Mm. And that's actually what ends up, you know, how Pacific salmon like fall apart after they, um, they swim upstream and then their bodies just degenerate it's actually cortisol. That's what's happening is that they have this extreme cortisol response and that's causing them. That's, that's sort of facilitating this stressful, you know, climb up the stream. And then because their bodies are exposed to so much cortisol, they like literally fall apart because all of their energy in their body is being directed toward getting upstream and none of it's being directed toward just basic bodily maintenance. And if you cut off the adrenal glands, which release cortisol from salmon, they don't fall apart, which, um, just goes to illustrate like how, yeah, no. So like the body, like, like cortisol is great in the short term in terms of like getting you adapted to stress. Um, but if you're chronic, like stress, like again, like PTSD, we're talking about like warfare types of situations and that sort of thing, because cortisol, when it's, um, prolonged exposure is so bad for the body, the body will just say, uh, -uh, no, we're not doing cortisol anymore. We're just not doing it. And so what you see is this blunted cortisol response in people who have PTSD and who've exhibited trauma and that sort of thing. And it's because their bodies have shut it down, but then it, you know, that renders them less able to cope with stress. Now, when we go to the birth control pill women, you can see why it's alarming that women who are on the birth control pill exhibit this blunted uh, cortisol response to stress because they essentially have the HPA axis, which is the cortisol, the brain uh, adrenal axis, which is what is, uh, you know, the thing that drives cortisol release and regulates cortisol release. They look like that of somebody with PTSD or who suffered trauma. Um, and what this suggests, although, you know, cause the, the, nobody, nobody quite understands why this happens and, mm-hmm. and which is frustrating when you're reading. Do the they understand how quickly it happens as well. Like if somebody starts taking birth control, how quickly does that system sort of shut down? No, we have absolutely no idea, okay. no idea. Okay. And this is actually something that um, we're trying to find some funding to study this issue because like 
super important. I have, I have a guess, and this is like, this is wild speculation. So like nobody quote this on Instagram or something. No, this is my speculation. I think like when you look at putting all of this together, it feels, I felt like encyclopedia Brown writing this book, you know, cause there's like all of this, these like clues about like what's happening, but nobody actually really knows. Um, but what I think happens is that during the first, and, and again, this is my speculation is during the first three months of birth control pill use that, um, the HPA axis goes into overdrive. Right. And I don't know exactly what it is. I think that it's the progestins because they don't have, they, they, they bind to a lot of cells in the body that they're not supposed to, like in addition to progesterone receptors, they bind to other things like testosterone receptors and glucocorticoid receptors, which is, um, the cortisol receptors. I think the body goes into cortisol overdrive. Like when you go on the pill, and I think it probably has to do with the progestins, like uh, binding to these uh, cortisol receptors that then causes the body within like about a three month time period to just shut down the stress response. And, um, and it does this in a variety of different ways by releasing these binding globulins and doing all of these other um, sorts of workarounds. And I talk about these a lot in, in, in the book, um, like the sort of what I, the sequence of events seems to be based on the literature but I think it happens in about a three month period. And the reason I speculate on this is that there is a lot of research that seems to indicate that women have the worst psychological side effects, the first three months of hormonal birth control pill use. And then after that they subside. Mm -hmm. And so what I think is going on is that during that first three months, women's stress responses are going cuckoo Mm -hmm. and and they're feeling really not right. And so once the body shuts the stress response down, then, then they start to feel a little bit more normal, but this is also like what's responsible for the sort of feeling kind of dead inside that women experience, um, or report experiencing. And, and, and when I say this, it, it sounds kind of dramatic, like, and, and, and it's because I don't have better language to describe it. And, uh, but a lot of women report feeling sort of numbed yeah that's certainly how I felt and numbed almost like you don't have quite the same level of experience of intensity of experience you can't quite participate in the same way because I took it between my children and I was like hang on this feels very different than when I was off it and was trying to fall pregnant and it's like yeah and when you when you realize that difference it's like night and day isn't it because you're like I'm sort of almost viewing my life from the outside I'm not in it because you're not feeling these uh, extreme, well, not extremes of emotions. It's not that anyone wants to be overtly emotional, is it? But you get to participate in the highs, um, the lows. Yeah. It's almost like you don't quite feel I found in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you're not experiencing the full spectrum of feelings. Yeah. Yeah, Like like you're only, you're like, you're only like getting this narrow spectrum and, um, and And it's the same every day, right? Which it would be because it's a controlled dose. Yeah. Yeah. And, and not having this release of cortisol in response to things that are really exciting or even things that are stressful, like that's something that sort of encodes experiences into our brain. And, and I can't help but think that, you know, that part of the deadening is, is part of this blunted cortisol response where it's like, 
even though we think about stress as bad, it's like the most exciting experiences in our life are full of cortisol release, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and it's because that's part of the way that our body absorbs things, you know, co- like stress means that something important is happening. Yeah. And so it can be it's exciting. That, it, it's not necessarily yeah. bad. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's like that important thing could be that somebody's holding a gun to your head, right. Which is horrible. <laughs> But that important thing could be the birth of a child. That important thing could be getting falling in love. And we know that all of these things are associated with cortisol release. And um, and so like not you know, to have- numbing out the brain, aren't you? Because do you know what it really reminds me of is that it reminds me of the same thing when I when I had to take so much medication to get over. I was on really strong bipolar meds. The point at which and I now completely transitioned off. The point at which I realized I didn't need that medication anymore, I was numb to everything again. So initially, it's kind of elevating you out of depression, but then eventually, it's like, well, I'm just numb now. There's no experience. I don't see the, I don't feel the joy. I might not feel the depression, but I don't really feel the joy to any extremity or pleasurable experience either. Um, you're making me really concerned about how much I've messed around with my brain. I'm going to ask you if there's long-term damage, but yeah, it's. Um, no. I think that most, um, like I said, like we don't know enough to be freaked out. Um, I think that, and and the thing to keep in mind is that the, like I said, the brain is really plastic and even organizational changes, the brain really can find workarounds for, but, um, but we, but we need to know whether or not that's true. Definitely. And women with the, um, the information, right? Yes. Yeah, definitely. I'm so glad you're putting it out there. I mean, and in terms of like the cortisol, let's say a woman's on the pill and then she comes off. Will her cortisol rhythm then correct quite quickly? You were saying you think, and it is a guesstimate that it's within three months that it's, it starts of pill birth control usage. What about when she comes off the other end? How long does that take to rectify? Yeah, no, that's really, that's a great question. And especially, you know, if you start taking the pill when you're 19 or like, you know, 20 or older, um, you know, your brain probably is going to like, quote unquote, go back to normal after some time. Um, because we would expect that those would be primarily activational effects of the hormones. Although there's going to be some organizational stuff, um, just because the brain is plastic and changes even as an adult. Um, but okay. With all of those caveats out of the way, it's like, I'm sometimes I like get into the weeds. I get all like, get all scienced up and like, well, let me make sure that I say the caveat, but, um, yeah, I I think it's probably, you know, and there's not a lot of research on this. Like they've looked at women, they've looked at this with, um, sex hormone binding globulin levels. And they seem to, they seem to find that non, so women who go off of the pill, still look a lot like pill takers, even three months after. And so it might take a little longer than that. Um, you know, I don't, uh, like I, um, for me and, you know, and I hear different stories from different women. I mean, some women, it takes a long time and I would imagine it probably matters like how long you were on it. Mm. Like, so I was on it for, God, I was on it for a long time. I was on it for about 12 years almost. Um, and I went off of it, um, for spans of time when I was, uh, pregnant and, um, and lactating. Uh, and so it may have made it easier. Like when I transitioned, cause it was after I had my second, when I was done, um, uh, nursing my second child that, um, I was only on it then after that for like, I don't know, a year. And then I went off of it. Um, 
And, uh, and it took me about, it was about three months after I went off of it that I started to feel like I woke up like where everything was like, Oh, wow. You're seeing color. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, exactly. <laughs> well, it's so funny because, you know, so it's, and I don't know many women who've had the experience of when they go on it, feeling like they get numb. It's generally, most people notice it the other way, you know, it's like, it, it, it's like easy to become numbed sort of slowly Mm. Um, and not really realize what's happening. But uh, so many women I talked to who've transitioned off of hormonal birth control, it's that experience of going off of it where they're like, wow, <laughs> like, what was I missing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. like, hello world. And, um, and what's really interesting and what I, I, so many women I've talked to, they, their experiences are that they experience things more, like more highs and lows, like you were saying, right? Like they're, they're more emotional. Um, but, and so that means it's a little annoying, right? Because they're more emotional, but, and then you ask, well, would you want to go back on it? Like to, you know, and it's like, never again, like, no, I don't want to be not like, no, I'm alive. Like I'm awake. Like, no, you can't put me to sleep again. And what about the other end? So like, I still see, you know, people come to me and doctors, are, they prescribe it obviously readily in teenage years, but then sometimes they'll prescribe it in perimenopause as well. Are there yeah. impacts for women that, because the more research I'm doing, the more I'm learning that um, in perimenopause, that, that those years are really, really important in obviously protecting things like setting ourselves up for good bone health, but also for good brain health and importantly, protecting us against dementia. What does the pill usage for a woman in her forties, have you seen any research or impact that it can have there? No, there's, there's, this is another area where it's, um, you know, they've mostly looked at uh, the research on this is mostly look at the therapeutic benefits of, um, of hormonal birth control on things like um, regulating mood um, and regulating, uh, symptoms like hot flashes and some of the unpleasant sort of, uh, physical symptoms that women experience when they're, uh, doing the menopausal transition. Um, but there is not like, um, and yeah, and, 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 in terms of like the ways that the pill, um, increases or decreases a woman's risk of developing osteoporosis and some of these other things I've seen that research, but to be honest with you, it's not, um, because that sort of veers outside of my normal, um, since I'm in, like, I'm, I do, you know, like okay. psychology and, 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 uh, I just, so I don't all the stuff with the yeah, neck, yeah. you know, from the neck down, um, is like less, my, less my wheelhouse, but I know that there is some research into those processes. I don't know exactly what they have found. And, uh, that's because the medical literature is like sort of across the street from the psychology and neuroscience literature. Um, but I, I do think that it's, uh, it's, it's a really interesting question. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is something that we need, uh, some, I would love to see some more, um, research on, uh, the sort of contrast between the synthetics. So the hormonal contraceptive pill, and then these like, you know, bioidentical hormones. Mm. So, you know, giving, giving women. And how does uh, it affect their brain? Do you know what I mean? Like, is it because obviously they're struggling, often women are struggling with brain fog and memory loss when they're having those hormonal changes. 
is if they're using birth control, which obviously is not really for controlling pregnancy very much at that point, is that having an impact on their brain that could be a downside? Right. Yeah. And I don't know, like, I don't know about what the the downside is. There's, um, there is some, like I said, there's some research that suggests that um, pill use uh, during the menopausal transition, it can, you know, it does regulate mood in women. So it can be therapeutic and in regulating their moods, which um, I'm sure some women find to be incredibly a huge relief um, because I know that there's a lot of uh, women who struggle with um, psychological symptomology. I've found fewer studies on like working memory, um, which is the thing that we would be looking at with respect to brain fog um, and pill use uh, during uh, sort of midlife. But that is also, you know, something that would be potentially where there could be some therapeutic benefits. Um, I mean, given that a lot of the symptoms um, of the menopausal transition have to do with the body undergoing big hormonal changes, um, you know, taking hormonal birth control, which is going to be keeping things level and consistent is there's going to be some, you know, obvious, like there's some obvious benefits to women of that. Um, like, but I don't know, like to what degree those would not be even better if it was using uh, a bioidentical. Yeah, that's the pro- thing, isn't it? Progestin is not progesterone, mm. and um, and and it, in my view, I think that using progesterone would probably be even more therapeutic um, because it wouldn't be doing all these other weird things that hormonal birth control does. Um, and a lot of those sort of weird things that hormonal birth control does, um, I have no doubt in my mind are the result of these synthetic progestins that don't bind just to progesterone. They bind to lots of different things in the body, which is why you get these weird effects on things like the stress response. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I think that we need, we need more research on these, on this transitional group and looking at the risks and rewards um, and balancing, you know, the psychological therapeutic effects with the physical effects, just because, you know, we do know, um, I'm pretty sure. So, and, you know, I could be way off here, but I feel like, I feel like I, I feel like I know that pill use during the menopausal transition is associated with decreased bone density. Like, I feel like I know that that's a thing um, because uh, of estrogen's role in bone density. And when you keep estrogen really low, that it can increase this risk. And I feel if, if I would have done my, my homework on this specific question before we recorded today, I could have reported that with more authority, but um, yeah, no, no worries. I was interested more in the, in the brain there actually. Anyway, I think it's just interesting because of what you'd said about the brain, you know, in the early years and it's kind of like a second puberty. Um, one last question I have is around because it's binding onto all these receptors and it's controlling things. What does the research that you've seen if any show around blood sugar management and also like triglycerides in the blood and things like that? Because there seems to be some impact there which probably yeah, is a surprise to people, right? <laughs> yeah, no, it totally is. And it's like, do you think that anybody, um, anybody's physician is having that conversation when they have diabetes? Mm-hmm. No, they're not. Um, and in fact, one of my dear friends, her daughter is, is a type one diabetic and, um, and she has PCOS, which 
a lot of type one diabetics get. Um, and she, uh, they are trying to give her, they're trying to get her on the pill and the pill keeps blood sugar high. Um, and so, and all of this happens, um, because of the cortisol response. So, um, when cortisol levels are, um, like total cortisol levels are elevated, which is what we see in pill takers. So pill takers have baseline levels of cortisol are like, so uh, and the, the listeners can't see where my hands are, but, um, the, the pill takers have, um, they're like sort of just baseline levels of cortisol are generally elevated relative to non pill takers. But then when stress goes on, the non pill takers have this dynamic surge in cortisol, which is what's supposed to happen. And the pill takers just sort of chug along. They're always baseline higher. So then blood sugar is always going to be higher, right? Yep. Yep. And so they've got baseline higher. And so they generally have higher blood sugar and higher levels of triglycerides. And the reason for this is um, cortisol. One of the things that it does because it's allowing our body to cope with and manage stress is it's dumping fat and sugar into the bloodstream to make it available in case you need to like get the hell out of there. Right. Because sometimes stressful things are things that we need to get out of. And it also makes those things available for the brain, which is an absolute glucose hog. Our brain is like the biggest consumption is like the biggest consumer of glucose in the body. Um, and so when, when we're experiencing stress, when cortisol is being released, it dumps fat and sugar into our blood, our bloodstream. And so when you're a pill taker and you have um, higher baseline levels of cortisol all the time, your blood sugar levels and your trigger triglyceride levels are generally going to be higher. And this Which is, is really some, important. I this mean, is super important. Why are women not told this? There's, I mean, okay, fine. At the age of 20, maybe this isn't as important as, I mean, it's always important, but put that into a 30, you know, late thirties, early 40 year old. This is a really important conversation, isn't it? Well, it sure is. And especially in the other thing, you know, in, in this same vein, and this is all cortisol again, is, um, cortisol helps regulate the immune system. Um, so one of the ways that the body regulates inflammatory activity is cortisol because when you have cortisol on the scene, it, it dampens the, the, uh, inflammatory response in the body. And what this suggests is, um, you can have a dysregulation of inflammatory regulation in your body, which is not good for anybody. And it certainly could potentially play a role in things like the development of autoimmune diseases, which women are already at a significantly greater risk of, of suffering from. And there's research evidence now showing that women who are, who are ever users of hormonal birth control are at a greater risk of developing certain types of autoimmunity. And, and, you know, and, and so these are really important questions and these are things that women need to be aware of. And and there's certainly things that, that should be discussed in, in, in doctor's appointments and considering family risk factors and, you know, and family histories of, of these kinds of uh, disorders when we're making these decisions, because if, you know, if I was a physician, especially if I was dealing with somebody with a family history of um, autoimmune diseases, diabetes, or if they have lifestyle related issues that are associated with um, diabetes um, or like high cholesterol, or, you know, some of these, like I would, um, I would make sure that the people were aware of that risk, you know, like this could elevate your blood sugar. 
And then it consider- feels like the conversation is not making its way down, though. The research isn't filtering down to the people who are actually doling out the prescriptions, either that or they're ignoring it. No, I think that it's not being, I don't think that it's getting down to them. I mean, it's like a lot of the, a lot of the people, especially when you look at who's giving out the prescriptions for uh, these, especially adolescent girls, it's generally a family doctor, right? They spend one week during med school learning about gynecological issues. You know, I mean, it's, it's like, it's, it might be more than that. It's a very, very short period of time. Um, and it, because it's like general, that's general practice. Um, they're learning, having to learn about all kinds of things mm-hmm. with people of all ages and, um, and to be True. giving, you know, they, they don't know a whole lot about that. And in fact, I had a, I had a really fascinating conversation with, uh, I did a podcast for a man, um, who, uh, is the head of, I, I forget exactly what medical organization, but he has a, a podcast called the glass hospital. And it's essentially about making medicine transparent to the public. It's a very, it's a really great show. And, you know, he said to me, like, I read your book. I did not know that there were four different generations of progestins. He's like, I've been doling. He's like, I've been handing out prescriptions for hormonal birth control for blah, blah, blah time. I had no idea. I had no, but, idea. no so he's just not. picking one. This one might suit you. This one might not. And not actually yeah. knowing. And that's yeah. often the case though, isn't it? Cause they go, we'll try this one. And then you come back and say, I felt terrible. I felt like I was so bloated. I was so depressed. I felt like this and that. Oh, we'll just try another one. It's like, let's yeah. try. Well, I know. And they could be making you try another one yeah. that uses the exact same types of ingredients. Yeah, they would have you know, no like, idea. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, wow. yeah, people like this one. Um, yeah. So it's really, um, it's, it's so important to us as women and as mothers and as, as friends. And, you know, if we have women in our lives that we love, um, is really educate ourselves about, you know, the way that our hormones influence, um, the way that we think, feel and experience the world. And then the way that a hormonal birth control can potentially influence the way that we think, feel and experience the world. Um, because, you know, uh, there's a lot of us aren't getting the information from our doctors and, and even like those, you know, there's a lot of really amazing physicians out there who really care about their patients, but they just, they aren't given this information. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so, um, we need to become experts on ourselves and our own well-being, and just always for women, um, fight for what, you know, is right with your own body, Like you know, yourself better than anybody else. And if you don't feel right, you are correct, right? That is 100% accurate. Don't let anybody tell you that it's in your head, right? If you're not feeling right, there's a reason for it. Even if the research hasn't picked up on it yet. Um, each one of us responds to individual formulations of the birth control pill in a way that it's very unpredictable. Um, you know, it's becoming very clear that there's no one size fits all answer because the way that people respond to it is incredibly variable. Mm-hmm. So trust what your body is telling you, listen to it. If it doesn't feel right, try something new. And it, you can always try a different formulation of hormonal birth control. If you want to be on hormonal birth control and see if you can find one that works for you and where you can try transitioning off of it and trying, you know, some other way to um, protect yourself from, uh, from unwanted pregnancy. Yeah. 
Amazing. That's such wise words. I like that's so important. I mean, you've heard for everyone listening today, you've heard how it affects your brain, how it affects your cortisol response, your immune system, your blood sugar, your triglycerides. It is profound. It is completely, it's a mind body experience, isn't it? And I think go away and educate yourself. Dr. Um, Sarah Hill's book is fantastic. It's brilliant. I've got it in both format formats, physical and Audible. The Audible comes with a downloadable PDF, which makes it really easy because you can go and look at all the diagrams. Um, so I found that really good. There's like a 50 page PDF. Um, I love your draw. I don't know if they're your drawings or who they are, but some of them made me laugh as well. They're really cool. Um, yeah. So those drawings are actually done by um, by a high school student. Oh, wow. They're really cool. They're really accessible because, you know, when I compare it to like my training in nutrition, the way it talks about the HPA axis, these are really easy to understand. So I thought of brilliant. Um, where can people connect with you? I know you're active on Instagram. I see you come up on my stories so because I follow your work. But where where can people come and find you and find out more? Well, yeah, they can follow me on Instagram, of course. And then um, my website is uh, sarahehill.com. And that's Sarah with an H. So sarahehill.com. And my handle on all of the social, um, on all of the social channels is um, Sarah E. Hill PhD. Brilliant. We will link to all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been really insightful speaking to you. Yeah, super fun. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed that. As always, all of the show notes and the transcript are over on my website, AngelaFosterPerformance.com forward slash podcast. So if you didn't manage to take copious amounts of notes there, you can go and check them out over on my website, AngelaFosterPerformance.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening and I will see you next week. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. You can grab the show notes, the resources and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind, body and lifestyle.